0: Uh, If I haven't met you already, my name is David. I'm the Minister of Youth and Training here at the church. Uh, Pastor Matt is away for uh, one last week here. He'll be back uh, next week for the outdoor gathering. Uh, But for today, it's my pleasure to bring God's Word to you again. And so, uh, like uh, Tim said, uh, chapter 17 of Luke is where we will be uh, today. But before we uh, jump into it, I would like to pray for us. Father, Uh, We come to you uh, today knowing that your word is true and good, and uh, we we approach it uh, knowing we are not. Uh, We acknowledge all of our flaws and the way that we have uh, actively rebelled against you this week. Uh, Our week has been full of living for ourselves instead of living for you, loving ourselves instead of loving you. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, forgive us of those sins. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And as we approach this text this morning, you would remind us of the goodness of your forgiveness to us. And as your word speaks, uh, we pray it would encourage us, it would challenge us, and it would lead us closer to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if you have been around in the church for any length of time, you will know one thing for certain. And that is that Christians are imperfect people. That is perhaps the understatement of the century. Uh, You know that when a whole bunch of sinners, redeemed sinners, gather together, there is bound to be conflict Uh, because we all live for ourselves. We live uh, instead of living for God. Uh, There's going to be conflict, there's going to be things that arise within a church. Uh, You've maybe experienced that firsthand in your own life. Uh, Maybe you uh, know of somebody in your life who has experienced that church conflict, church conflicts that that split churches. You've heard of people leaving angrily from one church to another. Conflict is going to come. So the question is, how do we deal with it? How how do we live together as a church, knowing that we are imperfect people and knowing that we all still need the grace of Christ? How, How do we do that? Are we to just say, you know what, if there's, if there's conflict, if there's difficulty, I'm, you know what, I'm out. I'm just going to be me and Jesus. Just live the Christian life on our own? Are, are we to just, whenever conflict, strife comes, are we just to move to another church, and then to another one, and just, just keep hopping around? How do we actually live together as a community in spite of our flaws, in spite of the difficulties that we're going to actually have together? Those are the questions that Jesus addresses in our text this morning. Uh, In our text, we've been going through the the book of Luke, and we've been uh, going through chapter 16, which Jesus has been primarily talking to the uh, Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time. He shifts his attention now. There's a shift in the text as he now speaks to his disciples. He speaks to his disciples and and shares with them, uh, what does it look like for them to actually relate to one another in community? And so uh, we're going to read chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. We're going to read that together, and we're going to see three instructions. Three instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples about how they are to relate uh, to one another. So um, if you have your Bible open, please follow along with me. Uh, If not, you can just uh, listen. The the text won't be up on the screen here the first time we read through. Uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 1 uh, says this. Uh, And he, this is Jesus, uh, said to his disciples... And turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. That's God's word to us uh, this morning. Again, like I said, three instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. The first instruction is this uh, Don't tempt brothers and sisters to sin. Don't tempt brothers and sisters to sin. We see that clearly uh, in the first three verses. I'll read them again for us. Uh, And he, Jesus, said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And so Jesus starts by simply saying, temptations are sure to come. Like in this world, we live in a fallen world, which we are still imperfect beings. There's going to be temptations. There's going to be things that come that tempt us away from God, away from living according to his law. Those are going to come. But his main point is, don't be the means by which those come. Woe to the one through whom those come. Uh, Jesus gives us uh, this kind of extreme example. And he says, basically, it would be better if a millstone, giant stone that was used to kind of grind grain, turned by an animal, this giant millstone would be better if that was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, dropped to the bottom like a rock, it would be better if that happened than if you caused another brother or sister to sin. The the little ones that Jesus is talking about here is not just children. Uh, Jesus, in in the book of Luke, he he refers to his followers as little ones often, little sheep, little children. He's talking about uh, all of his believers, children included. If we would cause one of those to sin not saying that you know, if we cause someone to sin, it's not saying they're not responsible for it, but it's saying to influence, to tempt, to lead towards sin. It's an extreme example, but his point is it's better to drown than you do this. Like that's how serious this is in Jesus' mind, that you would cause or tempt another brother or sister to sin. So if we think about how, do, how might we tempt somebody else to sin, there's a couple different ways. Uh, we could tempt somebody to sin just by ourselves being in sin and kind of wanting others to follow along with us, right? We, we want to invite someone to the juicy gossip we have to share. There's some other sin that we're in and we say, oh, come on, come on, it's going to be fun. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. But there's, there's other ways that we can sin that are maybe less direct, other ways we can tempt believers to sin. In Ephesians, Paul writes uh, to the to, to fathers, he says, Fathers, don't provoke your children. There's a sense in which we, as, as fathers, as dads, as parents, we, we, could, we could do something that might provoke our children to sin. The, the way we're acting, the way we're relating with somebody else, might be a, a cause for them to sin. Maybe it's our own impatience, our own anger. But then there's still there's still more things there we might be doing something that might not even be sin necessarily but it might tempt somebody else to sin. Like if we think about even how we might tempt another believer to sin by what we post on social media. How might what what we post there how, how might what other people are seeing there how might that tempt them to sin possibly? In terms of what we post the pictures we post? Uh, is there something that we're, we're, we're putting out there that maybe leads other believers to covetousness, to jealousy, because of the things that we're bragging about, wanting everybody to know? Might that lead someone else to sin? Or even just simply the activities that we have planned. Activities that maybe in our family are, are good activities, but in doing them, we're, we're so focused with those things that, that people, Christians in our, our household, are not able to, to follow God. They're not able to gather with the church. Maybe they're not able to spend time in the Word because of these other things we've got going on. We're, we're tempting them away from God. Maybe the, the most obvious example of this, historically, has been alcohol. Alcohol. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not a sin for a believer to, to drink. I mean, Jesus drank wine. But so, so we are able to, of course, not get drunk. But there have been believers who have said, you know what, uh, even though it's not sin for me to do this, uh, I, I'm going to abstain either altogether or in certain situations uh, because for the sake of my brother or sister, because I, I know that for them, this might actually be a stumbling block. This might actually lead them into greater sin. Maybe their conscience doesn't allow it, or, or a history of abuse of alcohol. So, so I'm going to abstain so that they're not tempted. I'm not saying that we, we have to all do that. But, but, but the idea is simply this. We're not just responsible for ourselves. In the church, we are not just responsible for ourselves. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, make sure you're not tempted. He says, make sure you're not tempting others. Our behavior, our actions, it's not just about our own holiness. Actually, Jesus is saying, you know what? You're responsible for the holiness of all the other people in your church. Right? That's what it means to be the church. We come together, we commit to one another for, our, for each other's spiritual good. And so we're saying, oh, my brother and sister in the church, I'm not just thinking about me. I'm thinking about how can, how can I benefit them? How can I build them up? How might I not tear them down? How might I lead them towards holiness, not take them away from it? And we're willing, then, as, as church members, because of the other brothers and sisters we've committed ourselves to, to say, you know what, there might be things that are not sin, they might even be good things, and I'm, I'm willing to give them up. I'm willing to, to, to sacrifice, to deny myself, be, because I actually want their good, their spiritual good. It's not our own pleasures, not our desires, not our preferences that are our main concern, but the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters. That's crazy, by the way. That's crazy in our culture. Our culture is not like that at all. Right? Because if you're out in the culture, and you know what? There's something that someone else is, you know, your, your life, maybe it's causing some harm for someone else, or it's causing them to do something they don't want to do. You're kind of like, well, that, that sounds like a you problem, not a me problem. Right, I'm going to do me. I'm going to live my life. And if that, that bothers you, well, then you need to figure that out. But in the church, it's the opposite. We're willing to deny ourselves, to say, even though I like this, it's good, it might not even be sin, I'm, I'm going to give it up because I actually care about my brother and sister more. I care more about their spiritual good. That's an amazing thing. And that's really attractive. That's really attractive because you think about it. Like, you, you come together in a community of people, and you know that the people around you, they don't just care about themselves. They actually care about you. They want what's best for you. They're willing to even give up their own pleasures, their own desires, because they want to see you grow in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing that happens in the church where people are willing to deny themselves for the holiness of their brothers and sisters. And so Jesus instructs us in, in verse 3, we see that he says, pay attention to yourselves. He's, he says, it's worse if, 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 you, if you cause another brother and sister to sin. So pay attention to yourself, right? So we're, we're to ask ourselves, okay, is there anything in my life where I'm, I may be sinning and leading someone else into sin? Or I'm tempting them? Maybe it's not even intentional. Maybe we just think, I'm not really thinking about that. I never really thought about how my actions really impact others in the church. Is there, is there something unintentionally where we might be causing another brother or sister to sin? Then we, if, if so, we need to turn from that quickly because Jesus says it's better that we drown than that happen. That Jesus cares about the holiness of his people, and we should too. So that's the first instruction he gives. His first instruction is that we are to not tempt brothers and sisters to sin because we, we care about more than just ourselves. We're responsible for the other brothers and sisters in the church. But what happens? What happens when somebody does sin? What happens when they sin against you? What then? Well, this is, this is what Jesus leads us into next. Uh, in verse 3, uh, we're going to read uh, uh, the second point. The second point is this, rebuke brothers and sisters, in sin. In verse 3, we see that. Uh, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Very simply. Uh, He says, if your brother sins, right? Is is your brother and sister in Christ, he's not saying you need to go home right now and rebuke your neighbor or your co-worker. No, he's saying your your brother and sister in Christ, those people you've committed yourself to and to their spiritual good, if, if they are sinning against you, We know it's primarily here talking not about just sin generally, uh, but sin against you because he, he says later that if he repents, forgive him. So you're going to forgive those who have sinned against you. So if somebody has sinned against you, then Jesus' point is you actually have a responsibility as a Christian to talk to them about it. You actually have a responsibility to talk to them about it, to rebuke them. Uh, To rebuke them, not not if they make a mistake. You're not to rebuke mistakes. You're not to rebuke preferences. You're to rebuke sin. Right? So we want to be careful, make sure that what they're doing is actually sin. But if so, then, yeah, we have a responsibility to talk to these people about it. Which I think for many of us makes us uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to do that. Even think about doing that. Right? Because we've seen that, like, done badly to us, to other people. We've seen people full of self-righteousness trying to rebuke someone else, it's not gone well. But just because maybe we feel uncomfortable with it doesn't mean that we're, we're not called to it, right? Jesus gives it here as a command for us. And if Jesus gives it to us as a command, we can trust that there must be a good reason behind it. Like if, if he tells us to do this, there's, there's probably a reason why. I can think of two reasons at least, the reasons for ourselves and for the others. For ourselves, if somebody has sinned against us, We don't want to just kind of leave it, let it go, and not deal with it, because it's really easy for us to harbor bitterness, resentment in our own hearts. It's really easy for us. So, So, being able to actually deal with that, bring reconciliation, forgiveness, it's good for us, but it's good for the other person, right? Because we know that we don't just care about ourselves, we care about others and their spiritual good. And so, if there is a brother and sister who's in sin, then we want to actually help them. We want them to see it because we want them to repent. Really, if we didn't want to tempt another brother and sister into sin, then surely we don't want them to continue in it. We, we want to, to help them. And, and a rebuke is, is one of the ways that we can do that. But here's the question. What, what, what does a rebuke actually look like? Like I said, we, we've probably seen it go badly. What does it look like to rebuke someone? Uh, well, we see a couple things here in the text. The, the first thing that we see uh, in verse 3 is that the goal of the rebuke is repentance. Uh, He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So the, the goal of the rebuke is not to humiliate the other person. It's not to make them feel condemned or bad. It's not even to get even or to make sure you showed them that you were right. You're to rebuke so that they will repent. And so when we're approaching this, We want to make sure that the atmosphere in which this happens makes it really easy for someone to repent. We we want to come in a way that would would make it easy for them to say, yeah, you know what, you're right, I was wrong. We we, we want to come with gentleness. Because that's actually what we want. That's our goal. Is to see this person uh, repent. Now, Paul talks about this in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6. He talks about how believers should approach this. This is what he says. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, uh, you who are spiritual uh, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Not a spirit of condemnation, a spirit of gentleness coming alongside. But then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he says, keep watch on yourself though. Because when you go into this rebuke, man, there's a lot of danger, isn't there? Because we can easily be filled with self-righteousness. We can easily feel like, you know what, we've got it all together and they're the ones who are wrong. But Paul says, keep watch on yourself because there's a great temptation when you're doing this. So we want to approach that situation with a lot of prayer, like days in advance. If you know there's something that you need to talk to someone about, you're in prayer, days, saying, Lord, would you grant this person repentance? Please, would you help them to see their sin? And Lord, would you help me? Show, show me if there's something in my life too. Is there something I'm missing that maybe I need to repent of first? We approach it with much prayer. Making sure that we aren't tempted either. And a genuine love for the person. A, a genuine love because again, we, we want their spiritual good. We want to see them flourish. Not because we're, we're angry, we're upset, but we, we, we want the best for the whole body. Uh, there was uh, a time in my life where, where someone did this to me. Uh, there was a man here in the church uh, that I, I did not treat with respect. I had said some harsh words, and some other comments, things that were not helpful uh, or encouraging. I didn't really mean to do it, but just out of my own selfishness, my pride, these things happen. And one day, uh, this brother had enough courage to come to me, and he said, uh, David, can I just can talk with you for a second. Comes aside and says, Hey, David, um, this is how I'm feeling. Some of the things that you said, this is how it's made me feel. Is there anything to that? You know, we talked it out, f- talked it through, and by the end, I'm just able to say, You know what, brother, I'm so sorry. Like, really, like, I am like that. I see my sin now. Thank you. You know, he's able to forgive me. It's wonderful. It was just hard to hear in the moment. Like looking back on it now, I'm so thankful he did that. Our relationship's so much better after that point. All, it's so good. Because you know what? I know that the mirror to my own heart, it's broken. I can't see myself very well. But God, in his grace, he's given me other brothers and sisters who can see me better than I can see me. And who can help me walk in holiness. And so I'm thankful for those things. And so here in our church, we, we want to have a, a culture we're giving and receiving godly rebuke is welcomed. Uh, not that we're all going to become the righteousness police and we're going around trying to figure everybody else's sin, you know, taking out the specks we've got a log in our own eye. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying that we actually have genuine love for the other brothers and sisters in our church that if they've sinned against us, we, we want to see them brought out of that. The snare that they're caught in, we, we want to see them freed. But we also you know what, we're soft-hearted enough that if someone comes to us and says, hey, I, th- I think there might be these, these things, what do you think? We're soft-hearted enough to say, you know what, you, you might be right. You know, we're, we're soft-hearted enough to repent right away, or even just taking that to the Lord in prayer, saying, Lord, I don't know, I, let me pray about this, let me seek the Lord. Maybe there is sin here. But we have that desire. So just a couple words of application as we close, firstly, uh, be slow. Be slow to do this. Like if if you're sitting here and you're like, finally, I've got a list of people I need to talk to after the service. If you're, if you're eager to rebuke people, I'll tell you, you, you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for you. If you're eager to rebuke, it's not out of love for them. So we want to be slow. We want to be really prayerful in our own hearts, making our, sure our hearts are right, if we need to repent first of something, even small in our own life first, do that. Bringing it to them and really seeking to, to love that other person. Because the goal that Jesus gives of this rebuke is, is repentance. R- repentance that leads to forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's what we see here next. The, the third instruction that Jesus gives uh, to us is this, that we are to forgive brothers and sisters who repent. That we are to forgive brothers and sisters who repent. Uh, We see this again in verses 3 and 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Uh, What if they don't repent, though? It says if if they repent, forgive them. What if they don't? Well, Matthew 18 is a parallel passage to ours and it deals all with what happens if someone doesn't repent. What if you talk to them and, and there's no repentance? So they don't think it's sin and they're like, you're crazy. Get away from me. What do you do? I don't know if they say that. But uh, Matthew 18, go read it when you, when you go home. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, is a great passage that deals with, okay, what, how do we actually approach that? The summary though is we're, we're going to start to get other people involved. We're going to bring a few other people alongside who can maybe help us see. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe there's them. We're going to maybe at some point have to bring in the the church or the elders to to ultimately help restore this person and bring them to repentance. But here, Jesus focuses if they do repent. If they do repent, we are to forgive. And so we should ask the question, well, what does it mean to forgive? A lot of ideas of what forgiveness is uh, in the world what does it, biblically speaking, mean to forgive? If we're, we're going to look at forgiveness, though, we should, we should define what forgiveness is by the way that God forgives. How does God forgive? That, that's how we should think about what our forgiveness should look like. And we, we could spend a whole sermon just looking at what, what is God's forgiveness like. I'm just going to give you two verses, which I think maybe help clarify one aspect of it. Uh, here in Jeremiah 31, uh, 34, Uh, This is God speaking to his people Israel. He says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Uh, In Psalm 103, uh, this is speaking of God. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so what we see here is of God's forgiveness, that he he chooses not to remember our sins. Not that God actually forgets our sins, of course, but he chooses not to remember them. He chooses to to put them aside and say, I'm not going to deal with you according to how you've treated me in the past. I'm going to restore that relationship. There's going to be reconciliation now. Right? so we Now, if we forgive someone, what we're saying is, you know what? I, I'm choosing not to, to pay you back. I'm choosing my, my personal vengeance not to be taken out. Which doesn't mean sometimes if people commit a crime against us, there can still be justice here in this world. That's okay. That's, that's not opposed to forgiveness. But forgiveness is saying, I, I, I'm not going to take personal vengeance. And you know what? That sin, I'm, I'm choosing not to remember it. I'm choosing to, to let it go. I'm choosing not to bring it up against you anymore. You know, when someone sins against us again and again, we're not saying, hey, this is like the third time this week. Right? We're not bringing out the record book. We're saying, no, it's gone. We're just not going to talk about it. We're not worrying about it. It's forgiven. It's like it never happened. We're moving forward. But what happens, though? What happens when, when this incident, incident does keep repeating? What happens when someone keeps doing the same thing over and over, are we supposed to just keep forgiving them? Well, again, Jesus answers us in verse three and four. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Seven times in a day. Can you imagine? Somebody comes to you, Same sin, seven times. That's a bad day. (laughs) It's not fun. And Jesus' response is, if they are repentant, we must forgive them. And so we we can ask questions, though, about, okay, well, how do we know if they're really repentant? If they keep doing it over and over again? Well, Jesus seems to say our default should be that we forgive. There's going to be instances where we're going to maybe have conversations with that. But in terms of true repentance, we can know true repentance by someone's by someone's really sorrowful for their sin. Really sorrowful for the sin itself and not the consequences of the sin. Right? This, this person, they're not sorry they got caught. They're not sorry someone found out. They're, they're sorry because they've harmed you and they've harmed God. And they're broken over it. You know someone's truly repentant if they're now fighting back against the sin. If someone has no fight in them, if it, they say they're sorry but there's no steps being taken, it's hard to know if that's true repentance. True repentance is, you know what, I'm, I'm going to fight now against my sin. I mean, if I've got to involve other people, I'm going to be praying for this. I'm fighting as hard as I can because I don't want this. And we're going to see change in that person's life. By the Holy Spirit's power, it might not be right away. It might be, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But over time, if the Holy Spirit's really in that person, working, we, we will actually see change in their life. But, but as a default, our default should be that we forgive. Even when people come to us, they've sinned again and again, we want to forgive. Because it's possible. It's possible for a true Christian to be truly repentant over something and yet still continue to fall into sin. We're broken, imperfect creatures. And even though we might fight hard against it, we might continue to fall. And so Jesus commands us to forgive those people. It doesn't mean that that there isn't a lot of, of pain. It isn't hard sometimes to do that. But Jesus' point is that there's no limit. Seven isn't like the top number, it's not like eight. No. There's no limit. We must forgive. Not a suggestion, command. It's not like, "Oh, I'll think about it." You must forgive. What if I don't? I know. I know. I know. I'm supposed to forgive. What if I don't, though? What then? Well, in Matthew 18, that parallel passage I talked about, right after. Uh, Jesus tells a parable to deal with exactly this question. What if we don't forgive? Matthew 18, uh, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven uh, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So he wants to settle up, collect on the debts that they owe him. And when he began to settle, uh, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent is worth about twenty years' wages. Is it ten thousand of them? So, however much money you make in a year, times it by two hundred thousand. It's like billions of dollars. An incredible debt can't ever be paid back. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, "Have patience with me." And I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. A beautiful picture of what God has done for us—that we have a debt that's unpayable, and yet God forgives us of that debt. Verse twenty-eight. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Denarii was about a day's wages, so couple thousand dollars, ten, twenty thousand dollars. It's not a small amount of money. It's not like five bucks. It's a substantial amount. And so he owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's what happens if we don't forgive. If we don't forgive, it calls into question if we will be forgiven. Because if we've been forgiven much, then we will forgive. Again, it doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean there's still not lots of pain and hurt that was caused by somebody, and that that pain might still be there, and we need to work through that. It doesn't deny that. But as a Christian, it means that, that we holding on to a grudge, bitterness, unforgiveness is not an option. This seems impossible. Really, if you think about it, the, the fact that someone would continue to sin against us over and over, and we're just to forgive and forgive and forgive. In fact, that's what Jesus' disciples thought. If you see here in the next verse, they cry out and basically say, Jesus, give us more faith. How can we possibly do this? This is what they, they say there in verse five. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Right? They're crying out, God, we need help. How could we do this? This seems impossible. Which is, which is interesting to note, right? Because the cry for their more faith, this is, this is the time that, the only time we have recorded, they cry out for more faith. It's not because they need a, a healing. They're, they're not asking for more faith because there's a difficult trial in their life. They're not asking for more faith because there's a difficult teaching they don't want to understand. They're saying, Lord, we need faith to forgive. That's a challenge. That's where they are being pushed. To truly forgive is a hard thing. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus' response is, is this. He's, the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, small, tiny little seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, a tree with deep roots far into the ground, say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. And so Jesus is saying, here's an impossible thing. A mulberry tree being moved into the ocean. It's impossible, right? But small faith, you can do it. He's not saying literally, you're going to be commanding mulberry trees. He's saying, there's an impossible task. And it's not that you need a, a great amount of faith to do it. All you need is a little amount of faith in the right thing. It's not the amount of faith that you need. It's faith in the right person and what he's done. See, all throughout the scripture, the reason we are to forgive is always rooted in the forgiveness that Christ has given us. If we look at Colossians uh, 3, this is what Paul says. He says, We are to be bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so what we see here is that there's this amazing forgiveness of Jesus that has been offered to us. And it's not that we need an amazing amount of faith in that. We just need a small amount of faith in the fact that we are truly, actually forgiven. That our guilt is actually wiped clean. That there is no shame or condemnation anymore if we are in Christ. All of the sin, all of the wrong that we continually do against God, he's wiped it clean. He doesn't see it. He doesn't remember it. Right? I know that it would be hard if somebody came to us seven times and sinned against us in one day, but think about how many times have we sinned against God in one day. Way more than that. Like, just continual sins. This person's repenting to us? We don't even repent that often to God. And yet he continually forgives us. His forgiveness is never exhausted. It's never running out. He always continues to, he never grows tired. He's not sitting up in heaven saying, oh, they did it again. No. No, he's, he lavishes forgiveness and grace on us. He wants to forgive us more than we want to be forgiven. That's what Christ desires for us. And he says, you can forgive others because that's the kind of forgiveness that you have actually received. A debt that can never be paid is paid. And so when we look at our brother and sister in Christ, we know that Jesus does not see their sin anymore. It's been forgiven at the cross. So why should we? Brother, sister, you've been forgiven. I forgive you too. So these are the instructions Jesus gives us. Three instructions of how we can live together as a community. That we are not to tempt one another to sin. We are to pay attention to ourselves, make sure that we are not causing another person to sin. And if they are in sin, if they've sinned against us, out of their good, we are to rebuke them. And then when they repent, we are to forgive. So that we can show the forgiveness of Christ to each other and to those in the world who are seeing it. So I pray that as we live together as a church that we would glorify Christ by the way that we love and care for one another. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we do just thank you for the the abundance of grace that we've been given. Just overflowing with forgiveness and mercy uh, to people who are most often not repentant. We fall short in so many ways and so Lord, Give us help. Give us your Holy Spirit to live together, to care for the people in our church, not only ourselves, to long not just for our own holiness, but for theirs. And pray that we would have courage to rebuke those in sin for their good and Lord, that we would forgive. Time after time, we would continue to forgive so that the unity of the church and the message of the gospel may not be impaired. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.